And by the time I was writing this or starting to sit down, I've already hiked, like we've talked about, several long-distance trails and some smaller long-distance trails as well, like the Wonderland Trail and the Washita Trail in Arkansas. So I had a quite, a, quite a collection of guidebooks, plus, you know, the dream section where, oh, I want to do this trail one day. So I already bought the Colorado Trail and some other guidebooks. Hello, I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. This episode of the Lumen Innovation Podcast is brought to you in part by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. 20 different flavors of pecans to choose from. Whether you want in-shell, cracked, chocolate, or candied pecans, the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company has you covered. Don't forget about their pecan pies and fudge as well. If you live anywhere in Central Texas, stop by their shop at 2626 Highway 71 West in Cedar Creek. If you live anywhere else, keep in mind that they mail pecans all over the country. Give them a call at 1-800-518-3870 or go to birdall.com. That's B-E-R-D-O-L-L.com. All of the pecan products are grown, prepared, and cooked right there in Cedar Creek by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. Welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox. Our guest today is Karen Summers. Karen is the author of The Lone Star Hiking Trail, the official guide to the longest wilderness footpath in Texas. The first edition of the guidebook was released in 2009, and the second edition of the book was just recently released in the past few months. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here as well. You are surely qualified enough to do a guidebook. You have... uh, uh, hike the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail. You've done cross-country bike rides on the Trans-American Bicycle Trail. Talk about some of those adventures. Sure. Um, gosh, I started backpacking in 1997 um, with my brother. He and I, our first trip was out to the Guadalupe Mountains, and it was a disaster. <laughs> we got terrible blisters, and we had a four-night trip planned. I think we made it about... Um, three hours, and we headed back to the car because it started uh, sleeting and snowing on us, and we had not enough good warm gear, and it was not uh, at all what I expected. So that didn't go well. And I, but I learned, and I and I wanted more right away. I knew I wanted to go back as soon as we, you know, hit the car. But I ended up hiking the Appalachian Trail in 1998. I was about 26 years old. And um, I had to quit my job and put everything in storage and sort of upend my life to do it. Um, It was not something I had dreamed about or planned for very long, but I had a strong enough calling when I found out about it that I just had to just kind of dropped everything and decided to start saving for it and and give it a try. That's like a three or four month trip and 2,100 miles or so, right? That's right, yeah. It was actually, for me, it was six and a half, seven months. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah. That is a life. It was a big commitment. 
Yeah, that's that's. Different. It was, yeah. I learned a lot about life and myself, and um, it was an amazing experience. It really changed my whole direction of my life and the things that I, um, that I guess I would say I found important about life changed. Um, so, I mean, I kind of came back to what I was doing. I went, found another job in engineering and another office job, but all I could think about was that next big hike down the road somewhere. And that, that was probably the Pacific Crest Trail, I'm guessing, was the next one? It was. So I, um, during the course of the Appalachian Trail through hike in 98, I, not on the trail, but because of the trail, it's, kind of, it's another long story, but I met my, my husband. He and I started dating. He had hiked the Appalachian Trail in 1995. So together we started scheming about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And that one that one's even longer, right? That's closer to three thousand miles. It is even longer. That's right, two thousand six hundred fifty. It's probably longer now. They they all seem to change mileages over the years. I can't keep up with it. But um yeah, so he and I uh attempted it together in two thousand. Uh we weren't married at the time. We were um, sort of testing our relationship at the same time we we're testing a trail. But unfortunately, I got really sick um, in the high Sierras about a third of the way through the trip. And I had to be semi-evacuated off the trail. Um, I got altitude, high-altitude pulmonary edema wow. in my lungs, and I, and I got really, really dangerously ill. So I wasn't able to be back at altitude for several weeks after that, and it basically ended my thru-hike attempt. Wow, that's amazing. So in 2000, I didn't make it all the way. <clears throat> but you tried again. But then I did. In 2004, we, um, in between the two attempts, we actually got married. So in 2004, it was an extended honeymoon. We hit the trail again in Campo, California, and we, we ended up hiking the whole Pacific Crest Trail that year. So that was um, the second start, and we, we got all the way to Canada at that, that time. Go quickly about the Trans-American Bicycle Trail. When was that adventure? That was in 2005, and uh, I kind of got dragged along on that adventure. I never planned to do a, a self-supported cross-country bike trip. It was not my idea. But my husband and another hiker friend of ours, Matt Sweeney, um, they had been talking about doing it for, for years and they started training and getting ready to go, and I decided, oh, I'm going to give it a try. And I really did not like it at first, but I kind of got hooked on it, too, and so I ended up going all the way across the U.S. with them. We, we started in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and finished in Florence, Oregon. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So the, the Southern Tier Trail is much southern, more south than that. It approximately follows I-10, but you were going across the middle of the country. That's right. This is the 76 route, and it does kind of bisect the U.S. When it hits the Rockies, it turns north and goes up pretty pretty far up into the, like, past Yellowstone. And then it turns west and heads towards Oregon. Those kind of things are fun. I've done a bit of uh, long-distance rides as well, and those, it's, it's fun. It's a neat way to live. It's, uh, it's a good way to turn off all responsibilities and just, just go and just kind of tune out the world and go have fun for a while. It's totally good. How did you take the... Uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, how did you take your, your love of outdoor adventures and then go, oh man, I need to write a book now? How did that happen? Yeah, good question. 
So I guess somewhere along the way between the bike trip and getting back to work and getting back to real life, so to speak, uh, I was in a, in a sort of holding pattern where my husband had gotten a job in Huntsville, Alabama, which is where he's from, which is where I am now. Um, and I was still in Texas, in Houston. Um, we were not quite sure where we were going to settle, and he wanted to kind of try out his job first to see how it was going to go before we made a decision on my job. So I had a few months where I was sort of idle, and I decided I wanted to, to use that time as sort of a last hurrah and go hike the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier and maybe another little trail. And I thought, well, you know, there's this little trail in my backyard that I have always heard about, and I've only been on parts of it on day hikes, the 100-mile Lone Star Trail, Lone Star Hiking Trail. And I really want to go try that, too. So why don't I get out and hike that? And, you know, I had been irritated, I guess, or frustrated that I couldn't figure out where to park, how long it really was, what to expect when I got out there. And if I was going to do this in one through hike, I kind of needed to know some of that information. So when I started digging around, you know, I found an old trail guide um, on the Internet, but it wasn't very detailed. Um, It was good, but it just wasn't enough for a through hike, I felt like. And I thought, you know, this trail deserves a guidebook. I wish it had one. And then I don't know if it was me or in the process of talking to other people I knew, maybe my husband said, uh, hey, why don't you write one? (laughs) And uh, so, or maybe I thought, well, maybe I should write one. Um, I do remember at the outset thinking I was just going to do an online journal, like what I've done for my other trails. So I guess I should mention that for the AT and the PCT, both attempts, I had done an online uh, trail journal on trailjournals.com. That's a fun thing to do. I did that with my uh, bike ride across Texas as well. I did it on a different website, but it, it's, a, it's a fun way to wrap up the day's journey. You're either sitting in a hotel or out on the trail and, and wrapping up your day's trip. That's For me, I found that kind of very, very something. I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed that part of it as much as the ride. Same here. Same here. It was, it's a good way to share it, but also to preserve the the day-to-day, what, what, you, what you go through, and something to look back on, you know, that, that it's going to be there. It also, it's inspiring to other people. And I think at the time, a lot of people were using those journals, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s as information like what to expect when they got out there and if they wanted to try the same thing. It's mm-hmm. a definitely, it's a good resource. And the fact that it's... Um you know, regardless of the writing style or writing ability, some writers that are doing those blogs are really good writers. But regardless of that, it's still somewhat of an unpolished, um, fresh off the trail kind of feel, and that's what future hikers want to read about. They want to know the that's right. the, the touchy feely of what is this actually like. So, so it's it's a really yes. really neat thing. Uh, so yeah, the, it's very good resource. The original book was released in two thousand nine, but how far before that did you actually get this idea in your head that I'm going to do this? It was early 2006 or maybe late 2005. Okay, so three, three to four years. Yep. So I set out to hike the trail in February 2006. And sometime before that, I think I would have been maybe between Thanksgiving and February, I had be- begun formulating this idea of the guidebook and at least doing some sort of online Inform- informative 
trail journal, and then that sort of morphed into, I could do an online guidebook, and then, hey, maybe I could get this printed. So it was nebulous at the time whether I'd ever actually get a printed guidebook out of it. But I knew I wanted to record as much information about the trail as I could when I was hiking. And I have to say one of the inspirations for me was reading about how uh, Myron Avery pushed a bicycle wheel the whole length of the Appalachian Trail. And I don't know what year it was, but it was the first time anybody recorded the actual sort of mileage and data points along the way in that entire 2,000-plus-mile trail. And he pushed the wheel the whole way. That that was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. He died sometime in the 1950s, so that was in the early days of the AT, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I had read about that, and I thought, well, hey, you know, I could push a wheel, maybe not one like that, because it's only 100 miles. Um, And I could take a a voice recorder and um, take notes that way, which so I don't have to sit and write notes during the day. I can just record them. And I could take my GPS, which I already had one. And I thought, well, I could do that. That's not that big a deal. And then maybe it'll turn into something usable and maybe not. Who knows? Um, So that's kind of how I started the whole process of the guidebook. So that's that's really good. So you like you mentioned before, you live up near Huntsville, Alabama, but you grew up and spent much of your life in the area just north of Houston. The Lone Star Hiking Trail, the LSHT as we call it, is about thirty to forty miles north of downtown Houston. So this thing was kind of staring at you all throughout your childhood. It was right in your backyard, right? It was because it, it was created in the nineteen sixties and early seventies, so it had been there all along, but I had never heard of it. So. Of course, I didn't start backpacking until I was a little older. So, It's a weird thing that, that I have known about it for a few years now, but uh, long before I had any contact with you, the way I first learned about it was, and I was just thinking about this the other day when I was putting my notes together for this show, is that I, I don't remember if I saw it on the news or on the Houston Chronicles website for the newspaper, but somewhere I saw a promo for your book. And and I that was when I learned about the trail that I've I've lived you know within an hour or so of this trail for twenty years and I didn't know about it until I saw a reference to your book and I bought the book immediately and went and hiked a bit of it and uh, so it's weird how the word gets around but but yeah your book uh, kind of got me hooked on it too so that's definitely a good thing that's good to know and that that was really my main motivation for the book at all was for hikers to help people know it's a, hey, it's there, and this is how you get to it, and this is what you can expect when you get there. Um, I didn't know at the time that the book was going to help the trail itself and help keep it a protected footpath, but that was another outcome of the book that that um, was a positive thing. In the very first pages of, of the book, you put a, a dedication in there to June and Joe. Who are June and Joe? June was my mom. Uh, Joe Summers was, is my mother-in-law. And um, what, during the process of the second edition, I started collecting data. I actually planned to through-hike the trail again in 2017. And that's another long story, but I got not very far, and a huge storm system, uh, like a tropical storm, came in and ruined my through-hike. Had to get off the trail. Um, so I started in 2017 collecting data, but it just took several years. One of the problems was um, that I was highly distracted. My mom um, came down with cancer. 
And um, I took care of her for a year and a half um, before she passed away. And a year after she passed away, my husband's mom was struck by lightning when she was at a, a job site. So we lost her. And that was during the time, whole time period when I was trying to get the second edition written. So that's why I dedicated it to both of them because they were both very supportive of me trying to get out and update the book, the second edition, when I was very busy. It was a very busy time in my life with young kids and everything, you know, job and everything going on. And they really inspired me to keep, you know, keep trying, keep going. So I wanted to... to um, to have it dedicated to both of them. And just the very next page after your dedication, you get a really amazing forward kind of a promotion there. It's just really, really well-written, really uh, really bragging on you from Marcus Wolf. Who is Marcus Wolf? Marcus is a friend of my husband's. They grew up together in Huntsville and um, went to high school together and have remained friends ever since, along with several other guys that they're still close to. And Marcus has been in the outdoor industry for years as a, as a writer, he wrote for uh, outdoor retailer magazine and has, I think he's submitted multiple articles to outside and backpacker magazine. He also has authored his own guidebook. So he wrote a guidebook to, uh, trails around Atlanta, Georgia. And I believe he's currently working on another guidebook for something local as well. And it just so happened he was writing his Atlanta guidebook at the same time I was writing my Lone Star guidebook. We didn't realize that we were both working on a guidebook, our first, at the same time. So that's how I got, that's how I know Marcus Wolf. That's rather convenient. You can probably cross notes on what to do and what not to do. Uh, that's that's really good. For those of you listening that want to uh, check out Marcus Wolf, his last name is a bit unusual. It's W-O-O-L-F. Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S. W-O-O-L-F. So check him out on Google. But man, he really put a good glowing review for you in the in the front of that. I was kind of impressed. It was like, man, if, if, if your life is nothing more than a guy writing a couple pages about you like that, that that's a life well lived. Uh, I thought that yeah, forward was really it, well done. It was very... Yeah, it's very sweet. Yeah. In the in the opening pages, right after the forward and the table of contents and all of that, you go into a few pages of the trail history backing up all the way back to how the glaciers had a say and how the Texas geology was and the trees and all of that. Talk a bit about that stuff. Well, I am no expert on any of those topics, but I figured that anybody who really loved the trail and wanted to get out on it would be interested to know something about the natural history, the geological history, or at least some people will. Um, I personally really like to read that, especially when I'm out on the trail and I'm there on the ground and I'm thinking about it. So I wanted to have some information in the book about those topics. So I actually had to go to the library and do a lot of research to find out the answers to those topics and get them in the book, um, which is why I have references in the back because, again... I'm not an expert on any of those those fields, but I also had some some help from um, Bill Anderson of the U.S. Forest Service, and then Brant Mansion of um, the Sierra Club, the Houston Sierra Club. And Brant is an, is a naturalist and knows the Lone Star Trail very well. Not just the history of it, but the natural history, the trees, the landscape, um, all that. So I had a lot of help from. Um, experts in the field looking at what I wrote and adding to it and helping me 
along the way. You mentioned those two in the write-up there, and it's, it's, it is a very thorough write-up. And, and you're right, the kind of person who wants to hike a trail is probably some version of a naturalist, and, and they want to learn those things too. So I thought that was a really good addition that's not necessarily an obvious addition, but it sure worked. And you talked about a bit how the Native Americans there, Karankawa and the Kadu Indians uh, made use of the land and and uh, the timber industry. I was surprised to read that the timber industry kind of almost entirely depleted the forest way back in the day, but of course it's been taken care of and replanted since then. Talk a bit about the history of that that you know. Yeah, um, the, the forest of the whole of East Texas was basically clear-cut at some point back in the sort of the turn of the century as those big logging companies made their way from the East Coast, and they sort of continued to run out of timber. They sort of headed west, and the last of the great forests sort of end right west of the San Houston National Forest. I mean, so you can kind of imagine they came in there, and they built a lot of temporary railroads through the woods and just basically hauled out, cut down and hauled out all of the trees that were still there. So what Um, we see now is what we may assume to be natural growth was basically not there 100 years ago, right? That's right. At some point, it was completely cleared out and cut down. So what you see now is, is who knows, you know, what exactly um, it would have been like. But I have seen pictures of people standing in the woods, and they were very open. Um, there was not a lot of undergrowth. And they, they kind of call it like a park-like setting with the giant pines growing very far-spaced apart. That's kind of amazing um, to, hard to imagine that now, because mm-hmm. I know in the Magnolia section that, you know, some of the opening miles of the trail there, there's Magnolias that, you know, in the, in the city, in the urban areas here in Houston, and I'm sure in the Southeast United States, you see Magnolias and they're planted in neighborhoods, they're planted in people's backyards, and they're a decent sized tree. But the ones you see in the Magnolia section of the Lone Star Hiking Trail are just ridiculously huge. They, they've got to have been there for a hundred years, but they've probably not been there for 200 years because of what you just said, but they're amazingly large. They are. Yeah, I agree. They are, and they're really pretty, and there's a lot of big trees, you know, that it's surprisingly, in places, hard to believe that it's not old-growth forest, because there's some big big pines, there's some big oaks I've seen, and but those magnolias are really special. I agree. Yeah, they're they're really something to see, because like I said here, the ones you see in the city are, are maybe 10 or 20 or perhaps 30 years old, but, but those there in the forest are just they're, they're the biggest I've ever seen, and perhaps some of the biggest, biggest in the country, I'm not sure. Uh, moving forward a few decades, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, talk about the, the two guys that helped to get what we now know as the trail. How did they get it started? Who were they and what did they do? Well, again, I'm not an expert on the history, but um, luckily I had Brant Manchin, who was very good about giving me, and, and Bill Anderson as well, um, about giving me a lot of details on the history and how things got started. They they themselves were not there, um, but it was a, sort of a generation before. And what they told me was that um, Oren Bonnie was sort of the ringleader of some guys that would get together and go camping in the Sam Houston National Forest. And um, I don't know if they worked for Texaco or one of them did or they had contacts there, but they ended up getting Texaco and or some other um, companies to sort of grant them some money to start trail building. They had to first go to the Forest Service and ask permission. But from my understanding, they they had the vision of a 100-mile continuous trail winding through the Sam Houston National Forest from the outset. So they went into the whole 
trail building with this vision. And I think Oren Bonnie gets a lot of the credit for having the vision because it took them, you know, a decade to get it completed with, with going out on weekends, getting grants, and they probably had to round up crews to go out and help them build trail um, volunteers. So it was a big undertaking. With a bit of help of the Sierra Club as well, right? That's correct. Yeah, the Sierra Club had a lot to do with the with the building and early maintenance and signage and all of the sort of details of the trail. Yeah, so I'm going to reread the title of the book and uh, and pull a, a specific point out of it. The title is kind of a long one. It's a mouthful. The Lone Star Hiking Trail, the official guide to the longest wilderness footpath in Texas. You very specifically called this a footpath, not a hiking trail. Talk about why footpath designation is important. Well, there there aren't many of them in the state. I don't really know why that is. I mean, we uh, Texas is a little bit lacking in public space compared to some other states, especially for relative to its size. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was um, it's sort of an independent nation at one point, and a lot of uh, it retained a lot of private holdings, um, sort of historically. So. Um, my understanding is that the forests, the U.S. forests, the national forests, were sort of an offshoot of this that big clear-cutting effort that happened when the timber companies came and they bought land for cheap and they cut all the trees off, and then it was sort of a wasteland. And I think that the government at some point purchased that land and and made it into to national forests. Um, but... Uh, but by calling it a footpath, what I was trying to get at there is that means specifically not a horse path, not a four-wheeler path, not a truck path. Yeah, it I is. was getting off in the weeds there. That's right. But but basically, because because it's um, the state is lacking in a lot of of places to go hiking. When you look around and start, you know, going to national parks or state parks, which we we don't have that many of national parks, but throughout the state, most of them are multi-use where you have horses. Or you're allowed to, um, on some of them, ride bicycles and mountain bike. Um, but there just really aren't many dedicated footpaths that are long distance in the state. Um, I think we, we have a, a few more now. I'm not an expert on where all, the, all of them are, but I've heard that the, that the state is trying to do a better job of, of getting some footpaths. But, but a footpath basically means that only foot travel is allowed. You can't ride a horse. You can't ride a mountain bike. Or obviously an ATV or motorized vehicle. Yeah, there's signs. Um, there's signs at each of the trailheads uh, calling that out, or at least most most of the trailheads that no no animals, no motorized vehicles of any sort. It's uh, you got your shoes and right. going down the trail, and that's all there is. And there's not many of those that's in it. not only in Texas, but not many of those in the country either. So that's it's actually really good. And I know there's been a bit of pushback from the folks that enjoy those other hobbies to say, hey, I want this trail too, but. Uh, but the LSHT has been trying to hold their ground on that, and that's probably a good thing, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's a good thing to have some trails where it's there's a there's just a certain level of peacefulness when you know all you're going to encounter is another person walking. You don't have to sort of be anxious about whether a bike is going to come around the corner, especially in the thick woods, or a horse, or you know some other distraction. Um, so I think that that's a special designation that needs to be protected.
let's break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Puzzometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from, and all are for sale at Puzzometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Puzzometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Luminovation podcast where we shine a light on innovation. Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Luminovation podcast on our webpage, luminovation.com. That's L-U-M innovation.com, luminovation.com. We are also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. In the book, you um, one of the chapters of the book is is actually a rather long chapter because it's a breakdown of all uh, eleven of the sections of the the trail, and you you call those out. Can you talk maybe not all eleven, but talk about some of the uh, sections of the trail and what makes them distinct from the others? Sure. The trail um, starts near what's called the Wilderness section and the Little Lake Creek Wilderness, and I think that. That section is interesting and special because there is another trail that that branches off from the Lone Star Hiking Trail called the Little Lake Creek Loop. And it's also, per its name, there's also uh, very few roads throughout that area, and it's pretty wild. So you can make a nice big loop joining the Little Lake Creek Loop to the Lone Star Hiking Trail around 20 miles, and only cross roads a few times so you really can get out there and get out in the woods and have a nice long hike um then heading we- uh, eastward from there <clears throat> you cross and and uh, uh hike along the side of lake conroe for a while and that's a really nice section because there's some pretty views of the lake and um i just i enjoy that section a lot just being around the lake. I grew up on going to Lake Conroe on the weekends, so it's kind of a special place to me. Um, and there's a nice campsite right on the lake shore there. Um, the next section goes close to Huntsville State Park, which is also a, a very picturesque uh, sort of diversion for some hikers, especially through hikers, who want to go into the park and camp, um, maybe pick up some treats or Mail, I think, that I'm not sure, if I can't remember now if they collect packages anymore, but a lot of thru-hikers consider Huntsville a good place to kind of stop and resupply and take a break, get a shower at the park. So in the sort of the western, or I'm sorry, eastern half of the Lone Star Hiking Trail, there's um, the Big Creek Scenic Area, which is a really picturesque spot, the Four Notch Loop, which makes a nice overnight um like a 10-mile uh, plus loop that you can do, um, kind of come back to the same spot. And then um, there's some really nice woods, kind of through the big woods and winters and Tarkington Bayou areas where we were just talking about big magnolias, but I feel like that eastern section or kind of the eastern quarter of the trail has a lot of dense, diverse woodlands, lots of you know, swamps and wetlands. I, I think it's a really 
different sort of feel, and it's a it's a really beautiful part of the trail. I haven't done much of the um, the eastern part. I've done uh, a fair fair part of the western section, but not so much the east. So that means that I've got some homework to do. Uh, that's that's a good thing. I was wondering though, the eleven sections that are called out in your book were those designated as the sections before you started the book, or are you kind of the author of dividing those sections up? Well, they they were designated. I mentioned an, another hiker's guide that came before me. It was written by Don Brewington. And I believe he wrote it in the nineteen nineties, and it it may or may not still be online or accessible, but the. Lone Star Hiking Trail Club, LSHT Club, um, they were sort of the keepers of that guide. And then they also have a guide themselves that's sort of in this, along the same line. It's a little more, um, what would I call, uh, more like a mileage guide than a description, which is, you know, my guide has a lot more description in it. But anyway, the... Their breakdown of the sections is sort of what I based my book off of. And I think most of what they broke into sections, I just adopted as I went. Okay. And each of the sections, if I remember right, all 11 of the sections are covered in basically one chapter, but but there are several pages per section. So that chapter turns out to be a really long one. But in each one of those sections, you do an overview of what that section is like. You do tra- trail access and parking, I mean, where where is parking access to the trailheads. You do what kind of supplies and accommodations are nearby. You do a map. You talk about the water availability on that section of the trail. You talk about the trail description, the mileage chart. You really do go into a lot of the details on each one of those sections. How, how did you decide what was too much information to put in here and what was not quite enough? I'm sure that was kind of a back and forth. Yeah, it was. Um, so when I sat down to actually get my data together, there was a, I mean, obviously there's a lot of raw data and you think, well, what am I going to do with this? So I ended up going through my own bookshelf and looking at my collection of guidebooks. And by the time I was writing this or starting to sit down, I've already hiked, like we've talked about, several long distance trails and some smaller long distance trails as well, like the Wonderland Trail and the Washita Trail in Arkansas. So I had a quite a, quite a collection of guidebooks plus you know, the dream section where, oh, I want to do this trail one day. So I already bought the Colorado Trail and some other guidebooks. Anyway, I went through all of those and I sort of looked through them with the eye of, you know, what do I really like about this book? What do I find most interesting and useful? And for trails I'd already hiked, I could tell you the parts of the book that I used the most. So I really sort of just borrowed or gleaned information from all these other guidebooks and said, uh, if I wrote my own guidebook, I'd want to have this in it. So I just sort of picked through there, and and that's how I decided what I wanted and what to keep and what not to keep. That's so. a, that's definitely a good thing, to pull from resources that you know, you know and going from your experience. One other neat thing in there that was developed specifically for the Lone Star Hiking Trail is the drops water system. I borrowed that from... Um, I believe uh, Alan Pape, uh, Dave Wade and Alan. So I think Dave Wade was the, the main keeper of the drop system. And I um, saw it on the Lone Star Hiking Trail Club website. And basically he just had a, sub, a subjective collection of reports coming in um, that he kept to indicate whether the water 
source was going to dry up during droughts or not. And they used the 2011 drought as their sort of worst-case scenario. And a lot of the ponds that you see along the way that look huge did not make it through that drought. So when I hiked, of course, it was in the winter, and it wasn't during a drought both times, you know, each time I've been out on the trail. And so I did my best when I was getting my data together to describe the water sources, but having that experience from the drought um, and, you know, Dave's drop system was going to add so much value, I thought, to the book. So I was just really happy when he agreed to let me borrow it and use it in the book and help um, beef up the reliability and sort of whether you can count on the water being there or not. And um, surprisingly, there's a couple of places on the trail that I I thought, well, this is a little trickling creek. Certainly that's not going to be, it's ephemeral. It's not going to be there all year. Well, come to find out with Dave's data and information, a couple of those little creeks are actually springs, and they lasted through that 2011 drought. So I was very happy to have his his information to to enhance the book and yeah. the value of it. The drops we're talking about is an acronym, is Drought Resistance of Point Source. And just an example for the listeners of what this actually means, it's a... It's on a scale of one to five drops, so you can think of it as one to five stars, like a movie rating or a restaurant rating. Uh, Five is defined as the source of water withstood the 2011 drought, which, again, historically, that's a really bad drought in Texas. So if if you're able to withstand that drought, you've definitely got some good water. Uh, So that's five drops. Four drops would be a source mostly withstood the 2011 drought. And all all the way down to one drop is the source water only... uh, only it only has water during wetter periods or maybe stagnant. So people sometimes watching the news from other parts of the country will see Houston get ridiculous flooding and it's really really bad around here. But they don't always realize that the other end of that is that we sometimes go through some very dry periods. So from a hiker standpoint, it's good to have that guide to know which sections of the trail has water that's available and which ones maybe you have to uh, count on the trail angels or to uh, plant your water ahead of time. Yeah, and hikers should also realize especially if they're coming from out of state, that this trail can get very hot, even in spring and fall when other places are cooler. And if you have an eight-mile stretch without any water, um, then that can that can be dangerous. So I think it's important for, for people to have good information on the water sources and what to expect, especially through hikers. Yeah, people that are not from Houston or not from the Texas area may not fully maybe not even believe this but but around here january through february march and parts of april is really good hiking weather once it gets past april it gets really too hot and muggy to really make it enjoyable and and to try to do some hiking in july and august around here is just dang near impossible so the good type of good hiking season is kind of around about now and and probably not too many weeks past now of, of early mid-april um yeah, what is so the people that do through hikes on the LSHT are doing it basically this time of year, March and April. When did you do your hikes for research here? The first one I did in 2006 was February. I think it was the 1st through the 11th of February. I think I ended up being nine days on the trail with two days off. Um, I had a tape recorder malfunction, and I think at one point we ran into a prescribed burn in the forest, and couldn't find a place to camp, put our tents down, because the, literally the woods were burning all around us. <laughs> so we had a couple 
unplanned nights at my dad's house um, waiting to get back on the trail. But they do a really good job of doing controlled burns up there to keep the major burns from happening. It's really a neat thing that they have well organized with the U.S. Forest Service. It is. And now it, nowadays it's a lot easier to find out about that through the web and through the club website. Um, but back then I, I wasn't tied in as much, I guess, and there wasn't as much sort of information about what was going on on the trail. Um, and then my second uh, addition, I ended up getting on the trail between the months of November and March and multiple times having to go back out because my original through hike did not go well. I ended up just on the trail two days before I got um, flooded out, literally. And so I ended up going back for day hikes and very short sections because I'd only have like a weekend or, you know, a day here or there to try to get a little more, you know, mileage on the trail. Um, that was really hard. It was hard to piece it together. You mentioned the uh, support from the Lone Star Hiking Trail Club. Uh, LoneStarTrail.org is their website, and they are they are surprisingly very active. They've got a really active Facebook group. Um, you've worked with them quite a bit to not only help get, put your book together, but to promote your book, and then, of course, your book, and you have helped to promote their club. Talk a bit about that relationship. Sure. Um, they, they do an amazing job of, of keeping up with trail maintenance, they act as a type of watchdog for the trail, sort of keep an eye on um, anything uh, as far as hiker usage or um, possible illegal usage if they see uh, maybe some motorcycles on the trail, so to speak. And they also just kind of keep up with what sections need to be maintained and taken care of. They get um, groups together to go out and do uh, maintenance, and they also do... Uh, organized hikes on the trail pretty frequently too, especially during the better hiking seasons. So they do a really good job with the trail. I've joined them on a few of their Saturday hikes. They'll do um, guided hikes on Saturday mornings. And then some of those are not only uh, guided hikes, but some of them are cleanup and maintenance hikes where they're literally pushing lawnmowers down the trail or they're bringing, you know, saws and, and hatchets to try to clean up the trail and make it more walkable. And that, that group is really good. They're very active. They've got a lot of really dedicated uh, and active participants. It's, a, it's a truly a good thing. So that's LoneStarTrail.org. And then they're also on Facebook, very active. So that's a good thing. Let's back up a bit to uh, the process of writing the book. How did, you know, so you're a biomedical engineer. You worked, um, you worked there in Huntsville in the technology industry. Uh, but so that kind of means that you're probably not really much of an author, or at least you weren't 10 years ago. So how did you go about finding a publisher and going through the business side of actually making a book? And this probably was foreign to you at one point, I'm guessing. Yes, that's right. Um, I did not uh, ever, ever sort of dream of being an author or intend to be one. So it wasn't something I went to school to do or have really any business doing it, so to speak. Um, but uh, when I decided the trail needed sort of its own advocate or guidebook. And I, you know, did, I did my data collection. I got off the trail. Um, I actually spent about a year getting settled in a new place. I moved from Texas to Alabama at that time. Uh, landed a job at the NASA Center here in Huntsville. Sort of got settled in. And finally, I sat down. I said, you know, I really need to get this book started. So, or whatever it's going to be. So I started... Um, Going through all the data, deciding, you know, 
I got an outline together of the book. I wrote a draft. Um, my husband helped me. He did a lot of the maps. He he kind of took that over from me. I was, did not know what I was doing with the maps at all. And I ended up with a draft of a book. It was more than I really intended it to be. It was more data, more information. And I thought, maybe this is too much for such a small trail. But it's here. I have it. And it's too much for, for sort of an Internet guide. Maybe I should just send this manuscript off to a couple of the publishing companies that I see publish these other guidebooks on my bookshelf and just see if they're interested, see what happens. And I really did not have a good feeling. Like, I didn't think it, anybody would really pick it up. So I sent this, and basically the manuscript was finished at that point. I sent this draft off to, I think, five different publishing companies, and Wilderness Press was one of them. And I waited and waited, and I never heard anything from anybody for almost a year. And during that time, I was busy. I actually, um, another big adventure, we decided to quit our jobs in Huntsville and try to hike the Continental Divide Trail. That's the sort of third of the big trails in the U.S. And if you get all three, it's called um, a Triple Crown Hike. And so we decided before we had kids and settled down for good, we needed to try to get our triple crown. So in 2007, while I had this book manuscript off and sort of seeing if anybody would pick it up, this happened. You know, I got out on the Continental Divide Trail, you know, we had quit our jobs again and sort of put our life on hold. And I only made it about three weeks into that hike before I found out that I was expecting a baby. <laughs> so... We um, we tried to hike a little more of the trail, but it was just too hot, and I was too sleepy, and morning sickness and all that, so I decided it wasn't a good idea to keep going. So we got off the Continental Divide Trail, came back to Huntsville to kind of get settled settled down and get get down to real life, and about that time, I got a call from Wilderness Press saying, um, we are really interested in publishing this book, which blew my mind because I, at that point I kind of thought too much time had passed and nobody was going to pick it up at all. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's pretty, yeah. pretty good. And I, uh, I kind of laughed a little bit when I read about the process of making the maps. Uh, your, uh, your husband, Andy saved the day. I, I understand you had some copyright concerns with uh, using other maps and he more or less had to do these all by hand. Is that right? Yeah, he did. So we had to, purchase the, the, the quads, the USGS quads that you see that sort of make the background of the maps. And uh, that was a big a big deal at the time. It was pretty expensive to do. I think things have changed now, but this this was like 2006, and, and online mapping was sort of its, in its infancy, and you couldn't just download your GIS tracks and get them printed out on the Internet back then. So I ended up having to have a lot of his help. He's a civil engineer, and he's more familiar with uh, maps and GIS and Photoshop and all the things, the tools, the software that we needed to make these maps. So he did save the day as far as the maps go, because I don't think they would have turned out nearly like this if it had been me doing them. Well, I noticed between uh, edition one and edition two, um, not only are the maps in color, but pretty much everything else is in color too. Um, is that because the publishing has got cheaper and more capable now versus 10 years ago, or was there another reason you went to color? 
I think it's partly that, that, that it is cheaper now to, to print in color um, slightly. I also, I, I understand that the publisher is happy with the sales. The, the sales have been nice and steady um, on the book, and I feel, I think they also feel like the trail has become much more well-known. The sales are sort of on a steady increase. People still want a, a printed guidebook in a lot of cases, even though you can you can get this book as an e-book now and um, you know, download it to your mobile device or whatever and take it with you. A lot of people still want a book, a printed book. So I was really surprised and delighted when they called and said it would be in full color because I was always hoping that the first edition would have been in color. And back then it was just kind of an unknown. Nobody knew if the sales would be good enough to support color and also just very expensive to do. So. Yeah, you've got some really nice pictures in the in both editions, but in the second edition, with it being in color, they really pop. You've got some some uh, you know pictures along the various lakes. In Lake Conroe picture, you've got a picture of a red cockaded woodpecker, and with them being in color, it really helps. And then the color maps are definitely helpful. What is what is one of the um, the biggest hurdles you had on this? Again, you you didn't grow up to want to be an author, but you kind of found your way into it. What is I guess perhaps maybe maps is one of those, but what is another really big hurdle that you kind of struggled to get over with doing this? Well, I think just um, writing, the you know, sitting down and, and actually making yourself write all of the information out in a in a readable form. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I did have a job out of college where I had to do a lot of summarizing and writing of te- sort of technical writing. So I wasn't wasn't a stranger to writing things, but I didn't have any formal training in it. I did enjoy keeping a journal growing up and obviously on the trails that I've done. So writing is always something that has come natural to me. That wasn't as big a hurdle as just making myself look, you know, it's, it's not necessarily all that exciting to sit there and, you know, then you take a turn in the trail and you find a lake. And next, you're going to come upon a hikers. It's it's just a lot of a lot of brain power, a lot of work. And so, for me personally, just sitting down and going through the details and sort of that wasn't my forte. I like hiking. I enjoyed collecting the data and being on the trail, and I enjoy looking at the finished product. But the actual act of sitting down and organizing all of it—that was for me—that was a big a big hurdle to get through. Yeah, there there are a lot of details in there, and you're you're calling out things as detailed as go to the picket fence and turn left, and if you turn right, you'll see what looks like a trail, but it's not is not the trail. Go the other way, you know those kind of things, and it is a lot of yeah. detail, and it's very helpful. It's it's definitely a good thing. One thing I was wondering while putting together the notes for this show, or yeah, for the the podcast show, is has there ever been a book or a guidebook, or perhaps even just a web page of the plants and animals that one can encounter in this forest. Because that, that would actually be a kind of a neat thing that people on the Facebook group will post a picture of some critter or an insect or a plant and ask the collective group, say, hey, what is this? Anyone know what this is? But one guidebook of right. plants and animals would be a neat thing to do. Is Has anything like that been done? Well, in the book, if you look in my appendices, I think Appendix uh, B, I think it's Appendix B, is um, like the recommended reading and references section and I have some wildflower guides back there that I had used and I recommended. I think some of these 
were recommended by Brant Mansion. He said they were some of the best guidebooks. Um, there's bird, you know, birders love the trail because there's a lot of interesting bird species in the woods there. Um, one book that I read recently, just over the last winter, was called The Land of Bears and Honey, A Natural History of East Texas. And it is listed in there, too, as well. Um, there's some tree books and ecology books in the in that section. So, But really nothing specific to the Lone Star Hiking Trail, as far as I know. Okay. Um, I just wondered about yeah. that when I was going through it. I thought, well, that'd be kind of a neat thing, because I know on the, a lot of the Facebook traffic, people are asking, what is this bird or animal or insect or whatever? And, and uh, it seems like there's people that are hungry for that information, but, but of course, that's a hard book to put together as well. But uh, So talk about... It would be. It would be a really good... Yeah. Talk about, about your trail name of Nakona, which is Comanche for the Wanderer. Why, why did you pick that, and why are trail names a thing? What is, what is that all about? <laughs> that is uh, probably mostly a thing on the Appalachian Trail, as far as I know. Um, so when you set out to hike the AT, either you're going to be given a trail name or you pick one for yourself. Um, it's, I think it's sort of 50-50. And um, if you're given a trail name, it's not always the most flattering you know, name that you could think of, um, depending on what situation you find yourself in. Um, so I was hiking the AT with a group of, of friends, including a guy from Houston who I ended up giving him his trail name, um, along the way. And then this group, uh, tried to name me and I didn't like the name they picked out. So I decided a lot of people were kind of picking their own names, but I wanted to go with Nakona. Um, and it, I got it from reading a couple of books about the Comanche Indians in Texas, when I was younger, and one of them was a story of Cynthia Ann Parker, who was a young girl when she was, her family was attacked by the Indians, and she was taken hostage, but she ended up growing up with the Indians and marrying one of the chieftains whose name was Nakona, and the tribe that she was in was also called Nakona, and it just meant the wanderers. Yeah, so that's where I got the name. I just was very inspired by that story. That's definitely a good thing. And speaking of inspired by stories, I'm sure there are listeners out there that are thinking, man, I need to write a book, or I've got this idea that I want to do. Regardless of the topic of the book that the listeners may be thinking about, what are some words of advice you can give to them of of how to go about doing a big grand project like this? Mm, that's a good question. There's really no, you know, there's there's... There's a lot of books on writing and the writing life, lifestyle, but there's really not a lot of books sort of giving you how-to on how to write a book. It's especially something like this that's nonfiction. Um, and I had a hard time getting advice from other writers and people that I knew who had worked on projects like this because sort of every one of them is so different. I mean... Hiking guidebooks are sort of a niche, and then you have, you know, a vast selection of different other kind of books you can write. So it's hard to kind of give advice that works for for everybody. But I would say that if you find yourself thinking about writing a book and you have this desire to do it, that you probably just should go for it. Try, yeah, dig in, try to get 
as much, um, I guess for me, looking at other guidebooks and sort of picking through those and thinking about if I could do this myself, how would I do it? How could I make it the way, you know, it's just all subjective, but the best possible, you know, sort of of all of these options for me would be this. And certainly other people will like what I did and other people will think it's too much or not enough or whatever. But um, I would just suggest looking at what other people have done and, you know, going for it. And um, nowadays there's a lot of self-publishing options that weren't around back then that I I probably would um, have tried something like that before even going to a publisher if it had been available. Yeah, there's tons of those now. Amazon is kind of leading the way on the self-publishing, but there's other companies doing it as well. But uh, that's that's definitely good. We're talking here with uh, Karen Summers, the author of The Lone Star Hiking Trail, the official guide to the longest wilderness footpath in Texas. Uh, Do you have uh, social media or email or any way for our listeners to contact you if they have any questions for you? I certainly do. I um, am at kborski, so K-B-O-R-S-K-I at yahoo.com. That's my email. There is also a guest book on my trail journal for the Lone Star Trail, which is at um, www.trailjournals.com slash Lone Star. Okay. And there's a guest book there. And then also I have an author page on amazon.com. Um and I'm on Facebook as well. So um, I, I try to keep up with the uh, Lone Star Hiking Trail Club Facebook page and kind of keep up with the postings there. So I'm, I'm around. Good. Yep. Yeah, and that, that's how I initially reached out to you was on Facebook. Uh, you were a member of the, the Lone Star Hiking Trail Club, and I, and I reached out to you there a year or so ago. And I, and I saw your book uh, a little less than a year ago the original one, uh, at the REI store in Austin, uh, which is a you know a two- or three-hour drive away from the trail. So it's neat to know that you're getting exposure that far away from the trail. But it's also available on Amazon. Uh, what are some other places that someone can buy your book? Yeah, the REI stores in the Houston area definitely carry them um, usually. And I think that uh, there's a, a couple of outfitters in Houston. I'm thinking the other one... Um, is Whole Earth Provisions. They At least they used to carry it. I don't know about the second edition. It just uh, came out on shelves in December. And to be honest with you, I was in Houston for Christmas for three days, and I have not been back since. So I'm not really sure the status of it on bookshelves or store shelves, um, but hopefully uh, people can find it, sort of thumb through it at one of those stores. Very good. Yeah, and reach out and uh, listeners out there, go out and get this book and support a, a local author. Well, local to Houston originally, but now local to northern Alabama. But uh, yeah, get out there and, and find a place to buy this on Amazon or at a local store and, uh, and support her. This is uh, the very first uh, podcast show we've done via phone. We're now kind of in the midst of this whole corona thing. So I, I really prefer to get out and talk to people face-to-face, but uh, I figured this was a neat opportunity to... Uh, do a phone podcast. So hopefully the audio will come out well, and if it doesn't, I'll get better, and we'll make it better next time. But um, any final words, uh, Karen, for the listeners? Well, I just encourage everybody um, who's interested in the trail to, even if you don't have a copy of my book, um, there's enough information online now, and um, the trail has become 
much better used, much better marked, uh, very well maintained now. So I just encourage everybody to get out, and even if you're just going to get out for a few miles to take a day hike, um, get out and see the trail and experience it and enjoy it. So I think it's a great resource for people living, especially in Houston, where, you know, hiking is, uh, you know, hard to do. There's not a lot of options. Um, but it's, it's definitely a unique trail. The, the woods are beautiful, um, especially in the good hiking seasons, sort of in the cooler parts of the year. And, um, it's a very peaceful place for short hikes. And, and then, of course, if you want to try, try your hand at something longer, um, it's, it's, you know, a great through hiking option, especially for people who, um, are wanting something that's not, not going to require them to quit their job and put everything in storage. <laughs> yeah, it's nice that it's it's a hundred and about a hundred miles straight through, but with all the loops, it's around about a hundred and thirty-ish or so, right? One hundred thirty-eight, something like that. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and so so it's but it's also done in in neat segments where and it's close enough to Houston you could literally go do a segment per weekend and over a period of a couple months you get the whole thing done. So it's really nice to have it kind of in our backyard here in Houston. Um, but also as a through hike, it it seems to be a very challenging, uh, not not overly difficult, but but to, to walk a hundred miles is not not trivial. So it's nice to have it here in our backyard here in Houston. Very good. Thank you for being a, a guest on the Lumen Innovation Podcast, Karen. This is uh, definitely neat. I have learned a lot, and hopefully the uh, listeners have as well. Go out and um, buy the book and look them look uh, Karen up online and reach out to her and say hi. Thanks for being a part of the show, Karen. Thank you, Jim. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for listening to the Luminovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live.